0: Scaling IoT with battery free Bluetooth.
1: Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Very excited this week. I've got Mikhail Damiani, who's the CEO and co-founder of Blue Byte with me. Uh, Mikhail, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steve. Appreciate Uh, it. I I think uh, uh, your You know, this show, we've interviewed lots of different uh, CEOs of startups, but you are kind of the head of an iconic uh, Bluetooth beacon startup that is still around 14 years later because you pivoted and adapted. So I would love to talk about, um, you know, why you did that, what you pivoted to, where you see this ecosystem that we're both in evolving. Um, Maybe the best way to start this off, though, is just to level set and have you introduce people to what Blue Byte is, who you are uh, now, and then we can talk a bit more about how you got there and where you're going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks again for having me. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's been a, a long journey, uh, a fun one, definitely an interesting one. So uh, excited to, to dive into that. But Blue Byte at its core is, is focused on connecting people with information through the physical world. And the reason why we do that is to basically deliver value to the end consumer, right? We want to improve life in some way, shape or form, uh, whether that's uh, instilling trust, uh, providing convenience, uh, allowing people to make an impact. Right. So, what are those ultimate end values and and benefits that a consumer can feel uh, by engaging through a variety of different technologies, whether it's near field communication or just scanning a QR code on a product? Um, and so, BlueBite is a software platform that enables the brands to manage that experience, if you will, uh, and to create these personalized experiences that will tailor themselves over time based on the consumer journey allows them to measure that in real time. uh, And again, ultimately for the main benefit of delivering that value to the end consumer. And by doing so, certainly the the brands realize a lot of value on their end, right. in the form of increased loyalty, uh, lower churn, more sales, uh, you know, uh, better authentication, uh, things like that.
1: So, if there's like a couple of use cases that really are driving your business, what 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 are the key applications that you're seeing taking off and maybe I should uh, start off with you know how is business? what do you what have you seen the tra- trajectory like over the fourteen years of your company's history?
0: Um, it's been a kind of slow and steady improvement right in, in the business and again, if you think about. The way our business is, there's a lot of different factors that play into that. Uh, Things ranging from handset compatibility with technologies, which is almost entirely outside of our control, right? The only thing we can control there is is education. And slowly over those 14 years, that has improved to a point where now, in the past two years, and especially now, is the first time in 14 years where you have uh, some kind of standardization, right? People can scan QR codes with no apps. They can tap an NFC tag natively. Every phone has Bluetooth on it, right? So all of these things that over the years, you know, we've kind of seen hype cycles and different technologies that have appeared, disappeared, been on some Android devices, not others on iPhone, not on iPhone. Uh, That creates a a big challenge when you're trying to now convince a brand or a company to say, Hey, deploy this. But by the way, only 10% of your customers can use it. The other 20, they have to do something else. The other 30 have to do something else. And then the remaining 60 do something completely else, 50, whatever the math adds up to be. Um, and so that's been a huge challenge. Uh, and we're certainly at the best point we've ever been on that now and, you know, for the past year or so. Um, so that's on one side, you know, on, on the sales side and kind of the business, call it your, your traditional metrics were, you know, doing better than ever. Um, you know, it's crazy cause it's a, it's certainly not the best year. Um, and the year started off really challenging, you know, Q1, Q2, even part of Q3, extremely challenging. A lot of the brands we work with within the fashion space and luxury space, you know, kind of closed budgets and said, okay, well, we got to figure out where we stand before we invest into any new technology. And now we're seeing them at least the ones that are successful and, and, and and will be okay starting to invest in kind of, you know, the, the next evolution of what that communication looks like between them and, and consumers and any digital means of, of doing so. Uh, and so we've seen a pretty significant uh, increase in that over the past few months. Uh, so, you know, on the so business one side what are
1: the verticals, are lighting up then, which. Uh,
0: so this year uh, was a, we've seen a lot of good traction in the CPG space. So that's uh, food, beverage, beauty. Uh, wine and spirits right people need to uh, need something to keep them sane uh, after months of <laughs> lockdown uh, you know that that vertical has done well now but even in fashion apparel like I said took, they took a little bit of a, a break or a breather in, in the middle of the year but now they're they're coming back same with luxury uh, it's coming back so you know I think 2020 was a, somewhat of a, a challenging year for for a lot of businesses and in, in those verticals but uh, 2021 looks like a like it should be, you know, a, a lot of returned uh, customers and a lot of returned interest into uh, especially doing what we're doing.
1: And and what is it that you're doing? What are the use cases that are really fueling uh, the most popular use cases mm-hmm. that your platform is being used for?
0: Yeah, and that's changed, right? The kind of the mix of the
1: use cases or at least, the,
0: you know, really within each brand, I would say it's it's rarely one use case. It's usually a combination of kind of a primary driver. You have your secondary tertiary um, and it goes back to those value points that I mentioned before, right, as far as what is, that, what is, that, what is it that we want to deliver to the consumers. And so uh, you have things like brand protection, right, which is authentication. And to the extent the brand has pretty high uh, issues with counterfeit goods, uh, we can help uh, enable that uh, security on their, uh, on their products through a combination of NFC and, and secure authentication in the cloud. Uh, in certain cases, blockchain, if it, if it makes sense for them. Um, and that's, again, helps the brand save money, you know, generate more revenue, helps consumers to make sure that they're not getting ripped off and buying a counterfeit item. Um, but typically like that's a use case. That's a, you know, an entry point. Once you've validated or authenticated an item, you really don't have to do that again in the future when you own it. Right. But if you're going to go through the effort as a brand to invest into that technology, invest in the process and the platform, you might as well get your money's worth over time. And so. Um, the second big, and this is kind of the broadest use case, is this idea of personalized storytelling. Um, and so being able to deliver the appropriate information for a product in store, right? If I walk into a store, I scan a product, maybe I want to see transparency information. I want to see where the, where the materials are sourced from. I want to see how it was made, maybe get a story about if it's an artisan product of how that product was made, the person behind it, you know, and, and their story. Uh, And then after I take that product home, the experience will shift over time. Maybe it's delivering me some kind of content or promotions or ideas or, uh, you know, as you get to the end of life of the product, what do I do with the product? Right. Can I recycle it? Can I resell it? Can I upsell it? Um, And so being able to being able to add that logic into the experience where it will change over time on its own to deliver that content to the user. So this is kind of the you know, the broadest area in which, in which Blue Byte lives. And that idea of storytelling is very specific to each brand, right? They, they have different ideas about what that means. Um, commerce has been, has been one that we started about two years ago, but I would say probably the fastest growing for 2020. And I think that's a natural kind of given based on the lack of uh, physical sales, red right, channels, or, or at least the, uh, decline in, in physical sales channels for a lot of these brands and then looking elsewhere to say, okay, well, how else can we connect with consumers? How else can we transact? We have e com you know, social media, other types of uh, venues or, or channels. So, you know, what we're saying is, okay, well, how about the product itself, right? You have this tangible, intimate connection between your consumer and yourself. The product is sitting in their homes, they're wearing it, they're touching it, yet yeah, it's not currently being used to do anything other than deliver that functionality that the product was designed to do. Whereas we can layer now this whole digital layer on top of it and you can use it as, as you would any other channel. Um, so commerce has been a big one.
1: And, um, but what does that look like? What does that really mean? Uh, can you give me an example of commerce? Yeah.
0: So an example of commerce would be if you have a pair of, let's say Adidas shoes and you scan, you know, you scan that pair of shoes and say, Oh, Hey Steve, by the way, you know, these Adidas, uh, you know, ultra boost running shoes that you have, they're great. You should buy this pair of joggers, right? Because it goes perfectly with, you know, your, where you live with the climate outside, you know, the, these joggers are what we recommend to you. And by the way, because we know you own this pair of Adidas ultra boosts, we'll give you a, you know, a 10% offer towards that purchase. So that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of an upsell. Um, commerce can also look like uh peer to peer. So these days maybe a little bit less relevant because we're, you know, socially distancing, but in the days prior to social distancing and post-social distancing, you know, to the extent that I come over your house and say, oh, Steve, wow, that's an awesome pair of uh, Ultra Boosts you have. Where'd you get them? You say, oh, don't worry, just tap them. Mm-hmm. I could tap your shoe. Mm-hmm. We'll, re- we'll recognize on mm-hmm. our end that it's not you who's tapping. And my experience will be different. And so, mm-hmm. oh, hey, you like Steve's shoes? Click here to buy yourself a pair and ship them overnight or two mm-hmm. days. And I would do that. And by doing so, you would get some kind of credit for that for being an advocate of the brand,
1: and um, so this implies going from putting these NFC because you're talking about using NFC here. Yeah, it could be NFC, uh, it could be a
0: QR code. You know, we don't really care what the underlying technology ultimately is. Uh, it really depends on <clears throat> on the ultimate use case.
1: But the the use case, you know, whether it's NFC or a QR code, we're used to a lot of these technologies being on a disposable label that's used in store but i think a lot of what you're describing implies that it's actually integrated into the product into the care label or you know what's the story of how that's progressed and where are people putting these auto id tags in the products
0: yeah yeah and and to your point again obviously if you if you put into something that's that's disposed of then uh you're going to lack that continuous journey uh and so um, it could be anything. I mean, Adidas is, is making shoes with a QR code on the shoe tongue. Uh, they've been embedded NFC into the shoe tongue, so it stays with the shoe for the entire life of the product. Um, we've seen brands put, um, you know, put them anywhere. I mean, we work with outerwear brands that put them inside the sleeve. Um, you can put a, you know, like you said, inside of a care label. You can put it inside there. Ultimately, you want it to be extremely easy to interact with and easily accessible where you don't have to take off the item to to tap and where it's naturally uh, located. Um, but it's, it's a progression, right? Four or five years ago, brands weren't willing to go through the process of changing their factory process, changing their production process in order to add this in. And so the first hit phases of testing were in fact either a hang tag or some kind of supplemental collateral that they would give just to test whether, people were willing to interact with us and people were willing to to go through this effort. And now that's evolved to where they see, yes, people are willing to do it. They're doing it at a higher rate than they are through other digital channels. Uh, And that justifies the investment, both from a capital standpoint and a human resource standpoint to alter the process or amend the process and to, to add this functionality in there. So, yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of, uh, seeing a lot of printed QR codes within CPG and Wine and Spirits, We're seeing a lot of NFC in the uh, lifestyle footwear and luxury space, right? Because those items higher end, uh, they stay with you for a while. uh, And, you know, typically the packaging, whether it's disposed of or not, is not something you have access to on a daily basis, right? You've taken it out, you've put it somewhere. And so in order to get that engagement, you really need to have the whatever technology built into the physical product.
1: Uh, Are people using washable NFC tags? I guess if you've got NFC in the tongue of the shoe, then... You probably don't wash your shoes very often, but if it's in a NBA uh, 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 jersey or something, that thing's probably going to be pummeled twenty-five, fifty times in its life. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, and they have all of that. So even in the shoe tongue, it's it's uh, it goes through wash testing and and dryer commercial dryers and wear testing, and you know it gets tested by all sorts of robots that beat up these shoes to make sure that the, it can withstand it. So. You know luckily I think there's been a lot of advancement made by the companies that produce these tags whether it's NFC tags or print QR codes to make sure they don't you they don't lose their uh, their scanability over time right and, and kind of retain that um, so yeah I mean you have the washable wearable you have uh, on metal tags right so to the extent you're talking about something that is applied to a metal surface then uh, you know we have like appliances and, and things like that they have tags now that can be applied directly to metal whereas a few years ago that was a challenge because the metal would inhibit the uh, the nfc signal and basically would render the nfc tags useless um, so i think there's been a, a good amount of progress made on the actual form factor side of things
1: what i find is uh as an as an uh, as a entrepreneur you who's passionate you tend to talk about a really broad set of use cases of all the things that are possible but the thing that i think a lot of people want to know is okay i understand the vision and i believe in the vision but where is it happening now uh what is the thing that's really driving the volume so and there's many dimensions that we could slice this by so let's kind of go through them there's qr code versus nfc there's, uh, you know, product type, um, you know, are we talking about tapping your coffee maker versus your shoes versus, I think you've put been involved in putting NFC tags in soccer balls and uh, all sorts of things. So um, then there's the use cases. So let's start off with QR code versus NFC. In terms of your business, how much of it is being driven by uh, one versus the other, would you say?
0: yeah that's a good question i mean we don't look at it that way um, in terms of you know when we got to market it's not like we're going out and say we have okay we have a qr sales strategy or an nfc sales strategy right for us that's the same thing for you it's a url it's exactly it's just that's part of the consideration set once you get to this the the second part of what is the use case what is the product right the ultimate the initial conversation is the same it's okay what is that value we want to deliver to the end user um, and if the product is, is, is uh, you know, very inexpensive and you don't have the COGS budget to integrate NFC, okay, you probably will use QR. If there is no component of exclusivity or brand protection or authentication, okay, then you may not need NFC either, right? Uh, or if it's a high value product and you don't need authentication, but the aesthetics of the product don't allow for any visual changes or amendments to the product and you need it to be seamless and embedded and magic behind the logo, okay, then obviously QR is not your go-to. So I think it's it's really a function of, of looking
1: within the specific brand that we're working with to see that. I mean, some brands
0: do both, NFC
1: and QR. How do you train people to find the NFC tag? I mean, I, I remember back before I joined Williard at Qualcomm, we had real challenges getting people to use their phones to tap something. And they didn't know where the radio was in the phone. Did I tap the heel or the front bit? And uh, then just, and, and I think in America, it was actually worse than Europe because in Europe, then people were used to tapping for payments. it seems like the payments thing is educated people. But how do you solve the where do I tap problem?
0: So luckily, you know, Apple
1: did a good job at, on that part, at least
0: on all iOS devices, it's standardized at the top. Um, and so that makes it easier. Uh, for Android, um, you know, you still lack standardization. It's typically in the back, but it could be towards the bottom of the phone, the top of the phone. So we've created a kind of a clever, um, you know, a, a clever way to showcase that basically where you go. And, and we tell users, if it's an iPhone, you know, you tap it at the top of the phone, like Apple Pay. If it's an Android we ask users to slide their device in the back because uh, that's the only that's the only way we can, you know, we've been able to do it. Um, but it's gotten better. I mean, the number of NFC interactions are up triple digits, uh, quarter over quarter continuously. Um, the brands are doing a lot of this education for us. Obviously, it's not up to Blue Byte to do it. So if a brand is coming out with it, they'll have it on their hang tags. They'll put it on in-store signage. They'll put it inside on e Um and, you know, and and start educating people as to do that. Um, And in terms of the tag itself, you know, again, now, because we've done this for so long, we have a lot of best practices that we give to brands from the beginning. And so, okay, here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. Here are recommendations. And so then the brands aren't scratching their heads, you know, to kind of your earlier point of like, we can do anything. Right. And that's, that's a terrible pitch when you walk into a brand and say, we can do anything. The platform is amazing. You could do whatever you want and go ahead and, you know, good luck. So, I think we've learned the hard way that we need to be a lot more specific across each of those things, whether it's education and collateral, whether it's the use case and content, the, the KPIs and measurement and all of those. For each of those points, we have extensive best case, you know, best practices, extensive guidelines and experience that we leverage. And then we kind of just bring that into the conversation and give the brands more more so of a menu or recommended list. And if they want something outside of that, or something different, certainly we can do that. But at least they have a very good starting point.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, politicians are really good at selling choice, but I think consumers actually don't like choice. (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, the thought of having 500 TV channels is just like sickening to me. I I want a few really good ones. And uh, uh, the paradox of choice is uh, is a real problem. And I think you're absolutely right. From a solution selling point of view, then uh, you know, at least you give people something to react to, uh, don't you, if you have that, uh, that prescription of, uh, of, what, of what works well and you can focus your marketing and so forth. So, um, okay, uh, that makes sense. And then, um, uh, but you, so you s- said it doesn't really matter, but I'm going to ask you again. Um, because I grew up in England and interviewers tend to ask questions over and over again until they get the answer. What are you seeing in terms of the split between QR codes and NFC uh, in, in, in the business?
0: So if I look at just consumer interactions, because I actually looked at that report earlier, um, we're probably about two-thirds NFC, one-third
1: QR. Wow. That's completely the opposite of what I was expecting. And it was right, the you opposite a year ago or two years ago.
0: And again, that may change, um, and it changes. It can change pretty drastically depending on the rollouts that we do with which brands, right? Because we have conversation now with brands where they want to put a QR code on, you know, ten million uh, beverage packages, right? And that's going to skew skew towards the QR side, and certainly will change that calculation a bit. So, you know, for us again, because we don't have a specific. Uh, call it sales target let's call it or or sales uh, strategy around hey let's go after businesses that only want nfc or businesses that want qr codes it's it's a it shifts pretty often depending
1: if you know we have a big customer rollout with one technology or another so what are the trends in terms of objects that are getting tagged would you say is there is there a pattern there
0: Yes and no. So as far as industries, I would say we've seen this year specifically, as I mentioned before, CPG and wine and spirits more so than any other of our verticals. At least, right there's probably twenty five verticals out there that are relevant. We focus only on four because that's all we can do with the resources that we currently have, as far as the sales team and, and marketing team. Um, but we are seeing a, a big comeback in demand from uh, from the retail, lifestyle, fashion. Uh, and luxury space in Q4 and, and moving into Q1 of next year. But a lot of this year has been around CPG, uh, food, beverage, beauty, uh, and, you know, wine and spirits as well. And that's been a combination of QR and NFC, even within the same brand, right? They're tagging some things with just QR, some things with NFC. and maybe a function of looking at your high value goods and tagging those with NFC and everything else is, is QR code is enough.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Um, and So that's why, again, it's, it's a little bit hard to, uh, to break that down based on, on QR and NFC just because it's, it's, it's so widely variable.
1: So, in your wine and spirits business, what what does that look, what do the use cases look like there? Because I remember going to AIPIA. This uh, can't even remember that, what the acronym stands for, but basically, advanced packaging um, and um, uh, seeing someone from Bacardi talking about tapping the phone on your bottle of rum and thinking, I just don't see people doing that. Um, what what what? What's actually panning out? What what will people do with a phone and a bottle of booze?
0: So they will tap it, depending on what it is, right? I think ultimately, it's it's to your point. What what are they going to get after they tap? Um, you know, is it a commercial from Bacardi and some kind of thirty second ad or thirty second video? Okay, yeah, probably not. Um, if it's something where um, authenticating an expensive bottle potentially um you know we've done things around the holidays where you can gift it right so i tap it i record a, get a message the next person who gets it that i gift it to i tap it and i get a digital message right so uh, that's yeah. you know kind of gamifying yeah. a little bit rather than some kind of stagnant experience um yeah what else have we seen you know we've seen stuff we did a, a launch with a wine company in, in in europe where they did um music so you get playlists based on the wine yeah. the different wines you know uh, kind of trigger different playlists. so that's a little bit of a of a different use case and an interesting one um we're working with uh and i would say the asia pacific region there's a lot of uh brand protection with wine and spirits specifically as it relates to uh you know to some of the goods going to china but i, I think wine in general is one of the most counterfeited items globally uh, the last stat i read was something around Seventeen percent or eighteen percent of
1: global wine is, is counterfeit. So it's just a huge, huge issue. That is fascinating. Um, so just quickly, uh, tell us a bit more about your platform. How? Uh, what? Uh, you don't spend a lot of time evangelizing the platform. I get it because marketing people don't really care how you do it. But how do you do it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true, <laughs> and it's also something that we learned over time of, of coming in and telling people. About our platform, and as you said, they don't really care as long as it works and it does what what they want it to do. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's a, it's a web-based uh, platform that brand owners can or brand managers can log into. Um, they can drag and drop components to create these experiences, and really the ultimate uh, the ultimate value and the ultimate called secret sauce, you know, and, and what we're providing is the ability for those experiences to change dynamically on their own rather than a stagnant landing page. So if I was to say, okay, you know, every brand for every product, you basically have a landing page, right? You have a product page on e-com that you can go on and gives you the product information, some other stuff, potentially, you know, ideas of pairing that product with another one. And all of those pages look exactly the same, right? Just switch out a couple of the key assets in the CMS. Um, But what if I was to say, okay, well, now I want you to create a unique experience for each of those, not just for each SKU or for each product, but for every single individual item produced as part of that SKU. And not only that, I also want you to create a unique page for every single individual person who buys that product. Right? That would be Got it. not feasible. Challenging, yes. Yeah, because yes. you would need a million or 10 million or a hundred million <laughs> unique landing pages that aren't you can't build in a traditional CMS. So the way our platform works is you actually create the components in there with logic. Right, And so you define the logic to say, if this product is this color, this size, this season, and somebody taps it in New York versus you know uh, LA versus Miami, and they happen to have tapped a product before in the past week, and this is the third time they're tapping this product, and they've signed up for our CRM, show them this piece of content. And you can keep adding these kind of a nestle, this logic in there where As the product is actually given to different people at different times and different locations, and they do different things within that product experience, the experience itself will change itself. Um, And so what you wind up having is then this basically unlimited number of possibilities, uh, you know, or, you know, renders of that experience, given those different conditions. Um, and so, again, all of that's just driven by underlying logic and, and the the software doing the work for you rather than somebody trying to sit there and create a million unique landing pages, which would be, as I said, a very difficult task, let alone,
1: you know, yes, a boring one. it would. Well, unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up, but I've got lots of questions I'd like to ask you. So maybe uh, let's, let's check in again in a little bit and we'll see how the industry has gone. And I want to talk more about... Uh, how you navigated from beacons to what we've been talking about, which is, uh, but, but it's been really interesting. Congratulations, good luck. Uh, thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'd love to come back for uh, for a round two.
1: So you run Blue Byte. How did, what's the founding story of the company? How, it was like 13 years ago, right?
0: Yeah, it was uh, officially almost 14 years ago. So February of uh, 2007, uh, which, yeah, I don't know how that happened. Uh, I was just thinking about it yesterday, but the, the initial idea was actually started back in 2002. So, you know, you're talking about almost 20 years ago. That was just a really just a uh, a notion or a seat that was planted by one of our professors at NYU who walked into a classroom first semester of school and uh, just mentioned, uh, by the way, you know, this new phone that I have. Uh, it was a compact Q uh, had Bluetooth on it and said one, one day you'll walk past a gap store and you'll get a coupon on your phone and you'll walk and redeem it. And yeah, at the time it was kind of yeah, cool, interesting. You know, we were busy thinking about what we're you know what we're doing that day or what we're going to eat for lunch that day. Uh, First semester college kids, but that kind of stuck in our heads. And so after we graduated, I worked in finance for about a year and a half. My friend Tom, who you know I've known since we were twelve, he worked in finance very briefly, quit, and then we started thinking of. Wacky ideas of things we can do together, and this was one of the things that popped back in our head, and you know, kind of asked ourselves, "Is this possible?" Uh, seems like a good idea, right? Uh, proximity and, and kind of relevance, and and so growing up and going to school in, at NYU in New York, you know, we kind of came into contact with a lot of the media that exists in New York. So every single street corner, bus shelter, phone kiosk has uh available you know some kind of visual either signage now it's a lot of it is digital has been converted to digital but even back in 2006 2007 you know it's kind of a clear opportunity for us to say okay how do we turn this physical stagnant signage into something that's interactive measurable um and that's where blue Byte was born it was a play on words on Bluetooth technology we used to install these big um kind of PlayStation sized Bluetooth uh, units, as we call them, transmitters. They needed power, they needed internet connectivity, and then you would basically, through the cloud, preload it with some kind of content. And as people walked past it, exactly as the professor mentioned, um, we can deliver them content. So at that time, it was couponing, uh, it was wallpapers, ringtones, back when people used to pay 99 cents for those things. Um, But we would do that on the basis of proximity to the Bluetooth transmitter. So it was kind of version 1.0 of location-based marketing.
1: And um, your co-founder was a fellow student at, uh, at NYU?
0: Yes, he was a fellow student at NYU, fellow student in high school and middle school. So I've known Tom since, uh, since we were... Uh, twelve years old thirteen years old
1: amazing and, and is Tom still part of the business or?
0: yeah he's he's still involved uh, not on an active uh, basis so he's he's still involved but he's he uh, moved on to other opportunities earlier this year so uh, still still involved but not on a day to day basis
1: all right and how did you figure out who was going to do what in the early days
0: um we didn't really um outline it so well to be honest with you we kind of just started doing and things just fell into place by by doing right so kind of just started doing started some of the same stuff we were you know doing at the same time because we needed to and then just over time it kind of worked out and again i think in our case the benefit was that we had worked together at that point already for 10 years right through high school and working on projects and classes together nyu same thing and so it was, I guess, an easier fit because we knew our strengths and weaknesses. And, and so we just kind of continued doing what we were doing before, just in a little bit of a different capacity.
1: So that's pretty remarkable. So you basically got the idea in college. You did about three years of kind of normal jobs. And then suddenly you're creating your own company. And, uh, uh, um, that's, uh, uh, and in the main part of the interview, we're going to talk about... Uh, about that transition that you made. So, um, um, what? So, what would you say is the secret to longevity? Because you definitely beat the the odds in terms of how long the company has been going.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe craziness. Yeah, you know, <laughs> a little, a little bit of, a little bit of that. Um, yeah, you know, just kind of. I guess belief this underlying belief that what we're doing what we're working on is is important um and it's not going anywhere right this whole idea of uh changing the way people interact with the physical world around them that concept that idea I think we latched onto that pretty early on and we've never let go um and things have changed obviously how we do that whether it's Bluetooth or NFC or QR or whatever that technology is has changed um the types of things we enable from media now we work a lot in the connected product space that's changed but the underlying concept of there's a better way to connect people to information and to in some way shape or form improve their lives whether it's on a small scale or a large scale as part of that uh, new way of consumption is really uh, i think something that you know we've never let go of Um, you know, and, and we just we just kept at it, right? I mean, there were certainly times when, for the first couple of years, you know, there's there's really very little demand for what we were doing, and in fact, it was the opposite. We'd walk in, talk to a brand, and then say "Be like, um, oh, you guys are crazy. Why would we do this?" Um, and that was the case for for the first couple of years, and I'd say the past four or five have gotten better, but it honestly hasn't been up until maybe the past twelve months. Where we've really seen some significant pickup and adoption of, of what we're doing, um, and so you know, here we
1: are. And what? So, what was your approach to funding? Was it bootstrapped to start off with, or did you get an angel investor? Or?
0: Yeah, so we started in two thousand seven. We bootstrapped it for about a year and a half, um, actually longer than that. So we closed our first round in two thousand nine. So if you remember, obviously two thousand eight. Not the best time to be raising money after the market collapsed. Um, that's exactly when we were out there trying to raise money. And so we raised our first round you know, seed, about a million bucks in 2009. And that lasted us for 5 years. So we bootstrapped it, just 2, two of us. You know, And we hired a third person, hired a few more, scaled back, and you know, kind of bounced around for 5 years trying to figure out what really the play was. And then we started seeing a lot of pickup in twenty. 12, 2013, we started seeing the business pick up. We started seeing uh, opportunities on the NFC side, on the QR side, and then this whole idea and, and kind of world of connected product. Um, and then we started raising more significant capital in, in 2014, um, expanded the team from 3 to 24, which is where we're at now. Uh, and now we're you know, seeing the opportunity that's big enough and the market has developed in a way where we can go out and raise a significant amount of capital to... Further kind of scale that growth and to support the growth that we're that we've been seeing so um, I would say we've we've raised you know a decent amount of money but certainly not what you see as far as companies raising money these days just because we kind of had to wait for the market to mature mm-hmm. in a sense in order to get you know the, to get the ROI on that investment because if if we had invested ten million bucks into sales and marketing five years ago it would have done nothing for us because the market wasn't ready to buy. Consumers weren't ready to engage, um, and so most of the investment has went into product and engineering over the past few years, up until now.
1: And um, when you were thinking about founding the company, did you always want to uh, set up a company? Was that part of it, or was it just kind of a means to an end?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, kind of entrepreneurial spirit runs within you know within my family. Um, you know, I don't think I left college with the idea of like, okay, one day, we're definitely going to start a company, right? And I, I then we talked about it. Um, but that wasn't a clear path. I mean, I liked my job in finance, I did investment banking on the West Coast, liked what I did, I was good at it. Um, I think what convinced me to leave that come back to New York to start this was just the size of the opportunity and just you know the, the scale and, and the possibility of what we can do here um and that idea of hey we can create something out of nothing and we can change something was appealing to me and how we did that in this case you know the 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 means to an end as you said was was starting our own business but it wasn't you know we didn't start the business because we wanted to start a business we started the business because we saw the opportunity and that was the way we could take advantage of that opportunity to actually make these changes and in the way people you know interact and, and consume information
1: and you mentioned uh, kind of entrepreneurship in the family. W- w- where did you inherit that from? What was the...
0: Um, so I guess a couple of uh, things. So I came here when I was in third grade from Russia. So, you know, emigrated with my, my family, my parents and my, my grandparents. Uh, my dad started his own company in, in Chicago my parents were divorced. My stepdad; he had his own businesses. Um, you know, some in Russia, some here, and just kind of growing up. You know, I helped them a lot in like legal stuff, translating stuff from Russian to English, um, and so I got exposure to running a business, interacting with people, legal stuff, contracts, pretty early on. Um, and so I think a lot of that actually prepared me for the, the work that I you know then had to do. All
1: right. Fascinating. So, uh, onto the music. Um, what uh, if you had to pick three songs to take on a very long trip, say to Mars? Uh, then, what would uh, what would your choices be?
0: Yeah, I have a pretty eclectic mix on my uh, on my phone. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, we can spend a whole hour, probably more than that, on, on just that alone. Um, so, let's start with. I would say the first one would be. Uh, and you probably never heard of this guy, but it's uh, "Iron Sky" is the name of the of the song, and it's by Paolo Nutini.
1: Okay, you're right. So, I have not heard of him. Uh, What's the yeah, music? Yeah, so it sounds is like that? an Italian opera singer,
0: but he's actually Scottish. Um, huh. So yeah, so it's a it's a it's a good song, um, you know. And uh, I don't know how deep you want to get into Do into. You? Let's get why. into it. Yeah, yeah I want to know why. All right yeah so you should i mean i'm sure you'll listen to it after uh, after we speak but you know that one kind of speaks to me it's a pretty powerful song it makes you feel you know kind of makes the hairs on your uh on your arms stand up when you listen to it um but that one to me is all about kind of how much we rely on others mm-hmm. to um to affect change mm. um i think you know that song is I guess, somewhat political, uh, in nature, but in general, you know, whether it's, you know, politicians, government, whatever, to me, it's more, you know, how much, how much do I rely on others to implement change or to impact change or to do other stuff versus how much of that power is within ourselves to make shit happen. Right. For lack of a better
1: term. Um, so that's why I love that song. That's, that's an interesting topic, isn't it? Yeah, as an as entrepreneur, you have to accept responsibility for everything. You know, you start blaming other people, then it's not going to get you anywhere. It disempowers yeah. you, doesn't it? But the flip side is, you know, as human beings, hopefully we uh, accept that uh, whether it's the genes we got or the education we got or the freedoms we enjoy, then that's, you know, that, that has a factor in our ability yeah. to be successful. You. I think immigrants feel that particularly, don't you? Because you kind of have a sense of this place that you left. In my case, I grew up in England and uh, England in the 70s was not, you know, it was not the England uh, today. And you basically stuck in your space. You didn't uh, kind of upward progression was not encouraged. It was. uh, And I look, you know, you look at the states and it may be corny, but this Ability to uh, to achieve that and and applause for success it's it's a factor in our success. So it certainly yeah, makes it
0: yeah, I, I agree. And obviously, and that was you know the the underlying rationale for my family moving out of the Soviet Union in the early '90s. Um, you yeah, same 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 principle, same idea, and uh, yeah, I think again, especially when you have that backdrop of coming from a country like that you have less confidence in government and kind of higher power to help. Right. It's, it's more up to you. Um, but not to say, you know, it, to your point, obviously there are other factors in that you can't do it alone. Um, but it's to what extent do you expect? Yeah. Right. And rely on on that. Uh, and what's that balance? Fascinating.
1: So number two, what's the second song?
0: Number two, obviously you're familiar with, uh, it's uh, hotel, California, by the eagles
1: is that to do with uh prac- going to california as uh yeah, as an analyst or...
0: no 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 it has nothing to do with that and i'm sure you know that song has been uh thought about and uh, you know kind of analyzed in so many different ways of what it could possibly mean and i think it means different things to different people um you know for me it kind of just reminds me of you know as we go through life there are different things that pull us in mm-hmm you know, and kind of that we get sucked into and some of those good, some of those bad, you know, anything from, I mean, a business idea, right? It's something you're kind of addicted to, um, you know, could be other addictions and vices or like I said, good, good things as well. So that's what that reminds me of is just, you know, how life is and you get pulled in and out of certain things and some things suck you in more than others.
1: Yeah. It's funny how these it's a powerful motivation. It's, I, I think entrepreneurs, they see a problem, they feel like this is the way it should be. This is the solution. And it's really, If I think that's why they get so passionate and maybe a little difficult to deal with sometimes because they have this very yeah. firm view of the way it should be. And that's what propels them through rejection and uh, all those other things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, number three, what's the third song?
0: Number three would be uh, running. Uh, by two, it's a it's a posthumous uh, album from Tupac, and that one is actually featuring Biggie. Oh. So I don't know if you if you heard of that one, but it's a it's a good one.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I actually so. I listened to it. Um, I started listening to his music mainly because I was wearing a Kooji sweater in Portland, Oregon. Once <laughs> uh, we used to live there, we went back there for a weekend. I went through a phase of collecting these sweaters. And no one has comment ever commented on the sweater other than maybe someone I'm kind of socializing with, but I'd be walking down the road and people would like high five. I was like getting adulation. I'm like, I, I, I have no idea. I've never had this experience of wearing a sweater. And it uh, turns out that, um, it's a rapper thing and Biggie was the guy that popularized it and, uh, so now i can't wait to go back to portland to wear my uh Coogee because that's uh, where you get the adulation so so you're uh, that's that's an interesting uh, collection of music you've got there thanks thanks very much for uh, sharing it with us